Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here. Uh, we're recording different spot than normal, keeping our social distance, um, but talking about Theology 442, so continuing in our COVID series. And today we're going to be recording three sessions, uh, Lord willing. The first on Chapter 11, uh, based off of Carter Lindbergh's The European Reformations book. Uh, chapter 11 is Refuge in the Shadow of God's Wings, the Reformation in France. Then we're going to jump to the Reformation in the Netherlands, Chapter 12. Then we're going to jump to the Counter-Reformation or Catholic Reformation, Chapter 14. So that should be three <coughs> separate sections that we'll be covering today. And uh, these will simply be um, big-picture surveys. They will not be as detailed as some of the stuff we've done on um individual monographs, uh, since we're just using chapters of a, a survey book here. But the the Reformation in France, we've talked about somewhat already um, in class and then on videos um, with the Calvin book. Uh, the Reformation in Sp- France is going to be an, an interesting one because it's it's kind of wedged in between radical Reformation, so the Anabaptists, uh, and magisterial Reformation, which would be, for instance, Vingley and Calvin and Luther, where you have government support. Uh, There is some government support for Reformation in France among some nobility, but it's never going to have clear, clear lasting, um, meaningful, you know, of conviction, theologically, support um, from the French royalty. And its support among the nobility is never going to be enough to carry it along as not all the nobles are supportive of it. Um, and so the, the evangelical churches in France will remain a minority, and it will not then be magisterial reform in near the same way as it is for Luther in Germany or for Zurich and in, in, uh, in, um, for Zwingli in Zurich or for Calvin in Geneva. One of the the first things to point out uh, as we discuss the Reformation in France is that it is a very, its origins are very Erasmian. So we've talked a fair amount about Desiderius Erasmus in class, um, and you've probably heard about him in some of your other humanities courses. He was a, uh, we say Dutch humanist in that he's from the Netherlands, but he doesn't necessarily um, spend most of his adult life there by any means. Uh but he is born in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. So uh, where I did my PhD was Erasmus University in, in Rotterdam. And to get there, I rode over the, my bike over the Erasmus Bridge past the Erasmus Medical Center, um, past uh, you know at least one Erasmus statue. And uh, they take great pride in him, but this is not where he's going to do most of his adult work. Um, but he will be influential across Europe, Erasmus humanism, uh, will be influential across Europe. And the Protestant reform in France is very much going to come out of Erasmian or Erasmian humanist circles. Um, and Mike, I, I know I'm going to do most of the talking today since I forgot to uh, scan what I was supposed to scan for you for this. Um, but maybe, uh, um, you know, if we're trying to bounce back and forth as, as, as we might with, with a classroom, just in general, what's your initial impression when we talk about humanism? What comes to mind? Well, originally, you, you're going to think about it in, I think, a very 
good way, right? You're going to go back to the fonts. You're going to uh, look at some of the actual texts of the of the New Testament, increasingly the Old Testament back in Greek and Hebrew, but also think about just the classics from the Greco-Roman world. So this was very much, you can think about it as a renaissance, a rebirth of looking into uh, the great texts of the ancient world and uh, making sure that education and study and research was something that that was seen as good and um and and now this can take a bad turn if it if humanism which is kind of more of a later kind of way of looking at humanism where humanity is put on par or above god right and so and that's be a more modern development and so many people today when they hear when you deal with that term humanism and apologetics you're dealing with a very different thing, I suppose. Right. In fact, there's even uh, cha- humanist chapels on, like, you know, uh, East Coast schools where uh, chaplains of schools that have kind of left their Christian beginnings and foundings and still want to maintain some sort of weird spirituality without uh, tying itself to Christianity or any other religion will have humanism. And it's almost, it's not exactly, but it's almost. Uh, what they mean is kind of agnostic or atheistic, right? right? Yeah. You know, like we're going to put hu- human thinking and social engineering, that's a bad word, but you know, this, this way of humanity and it, instead of looking at it as it from God giving us our, our epistemology, our knowledge, um, but looking into all of the sciences. So uh, th- that's a tricky word because if you say humanist today, you mean something different than you what you meant from Erasmus, who certainly believed in God and was a, oh. was a good Catholic by all accounts, other than maybe you know poking. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody was poking at the Pope yeah. and the and the councils. How could you not, right? So uh, you know, think think high education. Think about actually looking at the texts. Um, probably maybe a move away from superstition. Would you think about it that way? And so it's it's going to be a thoughtful reformation if it's going to be a a reformation that's influenced by humanism yeah and so this is as opposed to what we're gonna what we've we've already mentioned maybe more of a uh inquisition society of jesus catholic moral reformation without questioning what the pope says about the the texts whether they be New Testament or even some of the texts of, of the ancient world or some of the canons of the church, humanism is going to look at the texts. Yeah, and so most people, if they've gone to college and done general education courses or if they've gone to a liberal arts college, they've been somewhat trained in humanism, whether they realized it or not. They've taken the humanities, um, which is to study what it is to be to be human, among other things, um, but think liberal arts, uh, and that really should be a, a, its own episode someday, that, what we mean by liberal arts. But this, this <clears throat> humanist thought is very much going to shape the, the French uh, Reformation. And <clears throat> this is something that at first is going to be encouraged by Francis I, the king. He's very supportive of humanism until it gets too associated with evangelicalism or Protestantism in France. Um, but also uh, the king's sister... Um, Marguerite, uh, the Queen of Navarre, is going to be a significant uh, humanist herself. 
um, very learned woman, but she's also going to draw this uh, circle kind of scholars around her. Um, I know I never know how to say this this one. Uh, M e a u. I'm gonna guess mu <laughs> mu. Um, French words are always hard for me to say. Uh, she is going to become a patroness of of this learning. What's going to happen though is that two camps will develop within uh, French evangelical circles. And one is going to say, you know what, we work slowly. We work within institutions. Um, if that means we have to go along and, and go to the Mass and, um, you know, uh, put on a show once in a while, then we do that. Um, and then we work slowly. Uh, the second group is going to become more vocal in, in wanting to, uh, to bring about more immediate reform. That second group is going to definitely sort of ruin things for the first group. Now, you can side whichever, which, for whichever group you want, um, but the second group is going to really uh, push things. You're going to have uh, <clears throat> several events. Uh, we'll just take the, the placard affair, for instance, where uh, these evangelicals try to push the envelope. And so there's placards um, posted prominently, uh, even outside the king's own bedroom, uh, which are viewed as blasphemous by Roman Catholics, and I would say some of them probably would have been viewed as blasphemous by uh, Lutherans as well, um, but stressing a uh, reformed teaching, um, especially things connected to the Lord's Supper. And I thought it was interesting, uh, and Mike, I won't throw it to you unless you want to talk about it, but this was something that stood out to me, and I don't know if it's a connection that you've seen come up much before, uh, but it talks about Francis's reaction to the Placards affair. Uh, that these pla and these are the events that lead to Calvin having to go into exile. Um, not that he's directly responsible for any or all of them, although he perhaps played a role in, in, in a couple. Um, but it uh, it talks about Francis's rage at this. Francis's rage was not just a reaction to the affront to his person, uh, but ran far deeper, because an attack on the Eucharist was an attack on the very foundation of. French kingship, and I, I knew obviously um, the Roman Catholic structure was supportive to monar uh, to monarchist governments, but um, goes on to say the power and prestige of French kings was strongly rooted in Roman Catholic ritual and ceremonies, anointed with special oils, and receiving both bread and wine at the coronation communion. The monarchs enhanced their claim to rule by divine right, by assuming sacerdotal powers. I. I knew the, the liturgy and the structure of the church often uh, reinforced monarchy, but I didn't realize the connection with the, the Eucharist was that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, familiar with that enough to, to say anything um, other than that just broadly that, I mean, going all the way back to Charlemagne, of course, you yeah. have this this religious religious uh, connotation with uh, uh, the Pope and, and saying, okay, I crown you. And then the, yeah. the, the king's going to be like, oh, yeah, but make sure that I'm the one that chooses. You know, it's yeah. their own way of having a, uh, um, oh, how am I trying to say this, The like a balance of powers, right? Yeah. Um, I wonder if that was a mostly French thing with the, the Eucharist yeah, I didn't, part of I it didn't, or not? I, or? Yeah, I've not, I've not come across that. And I'm trying to think of like, you know, way back when Otto being Holy Roman yeah. Emperor and stuff like that. What, wh Why the connection with Holy Communion other than it's a legitimate mass maybe? I don't know. It's a good question. We should look into that. Yeah, and so it, the, the king is going to respond um, by basically emphasizing the Eucharistic um, and Eucharistic adoration in um, what follows. In fact, he'll have a, a parade that 
um, in which the Eucharist will be be prominent. These two camps then will develop, um, and the first camp, the one that kind of wants to work within the institutions and, and kind of a go along to get along, Kelvin eventually is going to call Nicodemites, um, and then he's going to be supportive of the more vocal evangelicals. The uh, But here then we have to recognize that the French Reformed are never going to be able to establish anything like magisterial reform, as I've mentioned, like Zwingli, Luther, or Calvin. And so in many ways, they're going to have to practice their faith uh, in a hidden and secret way that Luther and, and Zwingli and Calvin never experienced in their cities. Now, Calvin in France did um, <clears throat> before he flees France. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, but Luther never had to found house churches in Wittenberg, right? Um, and this is going to be the French experience uh, for, for most of the existence of Protestantism there. It's also important to understand how the French viewed the church's relationship to the state. Um, it definitely was viewed as uh, a body. The state is a corporate body, and it's only as, as healthy as its citizens and as its Catholicism are. Um, and this is... Uh, something we don't always, we don't think in these terms in, in the 21st century necessarily. I don't say, well, Mike's religion has an impact upon the health of the state. Um, or, you know, well, maybe I would say that. I don't know. But um, but we don't think in corporal terms all that much. In fact, that's what makes things like this COVID quarantine hard because you've got people who are just going to do what they're going to do no matter what because America, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so there was a real fear that God would punish the state for individual sins or individual heresy. Um, and there's been a, a lot of good books written on this uh, idea of the, the corpus, what corpus Christianae, um, the, the body of, of, of Christianity or Christendom. And uh, so we have to keep this in mind as we think about sometimes royal attitudes towards what they viewed as heresy because if the king was supposed to be the representative of God on earth and he's tolerating heresy, he can expect to be held accountable for that. Francis, yeah, I mean, even, oh, even yep. in England, defender of the yep. faith, right, which is still a title that uh, the royalty still has today, although they're trying to change it to the uh, defenders of the faiths, right, like kind of a plural I've heard sort defender of, thing. of faith, oh, too. Faith yeah, or something yeah. like that, of faith. Um, but that, that that's true in, you know... Frederick the the wise certainly probably thought himself of that. The difference is it's just different political system in Switzerland and in Germany and other places. And so England's different because Henry the Eighth's doing his thing, right? But he's still he's still trying to maintain cultural and political control and doesn't see those things as separate. Um, but in France and in Spain, even more so, right? That this is a Catholic country with a Catholic king and it would be just it would it would not it wouldn't be just like problematic if you had a different religion in the royalty as the people. It would be almost absurd for a lot of people right. to think that way. Like yep. why would you even consider that? It's just not something that yep. they would have thought and, of. And we maybe in America can get that can get that somewhat when we think about certain political issues. Um think of McCarthyism in America, right, where the the notion of communism was viewed as a real threat, and sometimes you would even have health language, right? This infection, um, stuff like that. 
I mean, we can somewhat understand why the French would, would think this way. And so this was that only, there wasn't just French concerns about um, Protestantism from the top. There was among many of the people a great skepticism about it. <clears throat> Francis I is going to die. And uh, the French during this time really liked their Henrys. So there's going to be a lot of Henrys. Uh, Henry II is going to take over for him. And uh, he is going to persecute more than, than Francis even did in the latter part of his uh, his reign. Even in the midst, though, of persecution, as often happens, persecution sometimes can actually fuel the growth of the church. Um, the Protestant church is going to experience growth. And it's going to experience growth especially among uh, up economically upwardly mobile and entrepreneurial people. And this will be very important because when the French Protestants, and they come to be called Huguenots, when they'll later flee, they really become an economic um, boom, right, for wherever they end up. Uh, so these are going to be people who are opening shops, making things, shipping things, financing things. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, what we would call upper middle class, right? The, the yeah, and they, they, they go to England, America, Prussia. Yeah, I and mean, so they, they are an important force, yeah. And... Uh, the uh, and so this will be uh, something also that will be important to keep in mind. Huguenot, uh, the composition of, of the Protestant Church in France, is going to have a lot of upwardly mobile, very entrepreneurial people, and then it's going to have uh, some measure of noble support. Well, what's a noble? In many ways, it's an <clears throat> it's an um, ambitious politically uh, kind of a. Um, politically viable person. The uh, You're going to have tensions for the throne in France too, different families that want to vie for it. So there's going to be lots of political considerations that will be that will come in. Sometimes you'll have a committed Catholic monarch or regent who's going to need some noble support to kind of maintain their position. And so they're going to be a little nicer to Protestants in the, in the process. <clears throat> but... Um, Basically, it's going to be a, a, a long goal for the, the French Protestants of persecution. Um, we're going to have, after uh, Henry II is going to die, um, we're going to have uh, Francis II, who's only 15, who comes to power. He's going to rule for 18 months and then dies, if I remember, of an ear infection, which sounds like a, <laughs> an interesting way to die. And and so you're going to have uh, Catherine, excuse me, eventually what will happen is Catherine uh, de' Medici, her second son, Charles IX, is going to come to power as, an, as a minor at the age of 10. And so Catherine is going to serve as the, the regent. Uh, and that's always a, uh, it's a precarious situation because you want your, the person you're the regent for, sometimes this is your child, sometimes it's not, to actually get a chance to come to power. And when you have a regency is when you have ambitious nobility kind of chomping at the bit to, if not gain power, at least um, get policy wins. Catherine is going to therefore be somewhat open to the Protestants, not because she has Protestant convictions, but because she thinks it will help broaden support. 
this is going to open the window for um, some of, of uh, Theodore Bates's work in France. Um, from the Calvin book, if you've watched the videos or listened, you know, Bates becomes uh, Calvin's successor in Geneva. So what Bullinger was for Zwingli in Zurich, Bates is for Calvin. And for Luther, you know, you'd love to be able to say someone, but you really can't. Uh, we talk about Martin Chemnitz as the second Martin, but that's more his gifts as a theologian. He doesn't really hold the iconic position uh, that, that Luther did. And, and so you have this bit of an opening um, for the, uh, the Protestants, which is only going to increase Catholic opposition uh, to this. Uh, because of concern about uh, increasing Protestant access to the royal court, um, because of perceived uh, maybe a policy wins uh, as they related to the Huguenots, there, there's going to be increasing tension. Uh, and there's always been some violence, uh, Protestant Catholic violence, and it's going to begin to erupt. So on March 1st of 1562, the Duke of Guy, and right, keep in mind these are the, the families that are fighting the, the Guy and the Valois, um, went on a hunting trip with 20, 200 armed men, um, and he comes across on this hunting trip a large congregation of Huguenots gathered in a barn for worship. And if you're a, a Catholic duke and you're out hunting Mike, you come upon a barn full of Huguenots worshiping, I mean, what's the only thing that it makes sense to do? Well, you know, I wonder if they've been drinking too. Yeah, that maybe not. Hunt the kind of goes on hunting <laughs> trips, yeah. Uh, this is an opportunity, right? And so there is going to be uh, some trouble there, isn't there? Yeah, they're going to end up killing at least 50, it seems, of the Huguenots, wounding many more. And believe it or not, the Huguenots don't take kindly to this. One of the big debates that developed in French Protestantism was, did um, the Protestants have right, uh, a right to resist? Or could a Protestant noble person resist um, the person over them? Uh, Bateson is going to say yes. Calvin is a resounding no. It's interesting. People always think, right, that um, the doctrine of resistance comes out of Calvinism, but Calvin definitely is not for it. Same as Luther was not, for the most part, although he'll have a shift. uh, He says, fine, let the lawyer's lawyer um, a little bit later in life. But this is where it's going to be enough is enough for the the Huguenots. And they're going to take up arms. They're going to have militias. um, And they're actually going to call to England for assistance. Well, if one of your goals um, in your mission work, if we can speak of it in that way in France, was to create a French church, which is a rather patriotic thing, an appeal to England is not uh, the most French thing to do. And this appeal to England and to foreign countries that will come later um, for assistance is going to hurt the Huguenots among the French base too because it's going to be seen as unpatriotic. And here we can see religion and politics and nationalism all sort of being caught up in, in one. What's really going to be the big blow when it comes to violence is going to be the St. Bartholomew Day uh, Day's Massacre. And this uh, is going to be when, when Charles the Ninth, who's no longer a minor and wants to prove himself, 
is going to basically uh, spark off. He's gonna gonna say to Paris, um, without directly saying it, uh, "Have at the Protestants. Go ahead and have at them." Um, there's going to be this murder of this uh, prominent Huguenot uh, noble Coligny, um, and uh, and then you're going to have uh, this locking of the gates that Charles will, will order. Um, he locks the gates of Paris now, partly because there's Huguenot troops in the suburbs. Yeah, so there have been like a series after the the massacre of Versailles. I can't remember how to pronounce that. V a s s. The one where they take the the hunting trip to, and oh. they take their that that. It's, I think it's Vassy. Vassy, maybe. maybe they are going to have then Huguenot Catholic sort of Huguenot wars, right? Yep. And then. Duke Francis of Guy is murdered, right? Yep. And then Coligny, who had been familiar with Catherine uh, de Medici, that's how I say it, whatever, um, and had influence over her son, um, he gets assassinated, correct? In yeah, this, and, and, in, and Catherine, yeah. to curry favor with the Huguenots, had had her son yeah. tutored by people with Protestant inclinations and Coligny's assassination is going to set it off yes yeah so 60 just for the dates 1562 March is that uh, uh, massacre at Vasey Vasey and then um, St. Bartholomew's day massacre is what year is that just so I can get it August 1572 so there is a period of time there where it's there's literally wars going Mm -hmm. on right yeah okay And, and that's throughout this time there's going to be violence and that's where, too, we have to keep in mind again, there is never Protestant magisterial reform in France. This is the kind of thing that if you had the government behind you, you'd be able to put down. But this also does speak to, um, as much as the French monarchy wants to project power, for this to be an ongoing thing must show that the, the Huguenot nobility did have some sway um, and the, the determination of the, the French Protestants. Um, so the doors are closed to Paris. There's Huguenot troops outside, and now they can't get in. And basically, um, it becomes this kind of protracted riot. Um, the uh, As far as the, the numbers who die, um, it's estimated about 6,000 people were killed in Paris um, and about 20,000 in all of France. And, uh, and Lindbergh says Catherine and the king had unleashed state terrorism. And here, it's important to understand, though, then, this clearly wasn't, for this to happen, this clearly wasn't um, simply state-driven opposition to French Protestantism. There had to have been some grassroots anger, right? Just closing the gates in kind of a wink and a nod, if there's not popular support for something, um, is not going to lead to the scale of violence that that took place here. This was people who saw Protestantism as poison um, for the national community or for their local community. This was Parisians who thought Paris was going to be less Paris and maybe even punished for God if it was tolerating heresy. Um, but probably also political and economic hostilities as well that are uh, that are boiling over. The the French Protestants are going to get pretty much no support, besides thoughts and prayers, um, <laughs> from Protestants <laughs> elsewhere in Europe. Um, and this is where it's going to just 
be the beginning of the end for hopes of a reformed France. This doesn't mean there won't be any more Protestants in France, but the hopes of a reformed France is pretty much going to go out the window. Uh, and you're going to have a number of exiles who are going to go into other Protestant countries and really be an economic boon, although this will be bad for German Lutheranism from a biased Lutheran perspective because it's partly the Huguenots which will help um, bring more Reformed influence into the um, the Union churches of Germany. And, uh, you know, even there's backstory to that with the Prussian Union. And these are very... Um, determined and ambitious people. <clears throat> now, none of the none of the kings, right, we're so hopefully getting a sense for none of the kings really want to live that long during this period. So we're going to have Charles the Ninth is going to die. And then Henry the Third is going to come to power. Uh, and Henry the Third is going to be uh, assassinated, I believe he's stabbed, if I'm not mistaken, by a, a friar, a monk, um, who thought he was going to bring it upon the second coming by doing so, which uh, did not work. Yeah. The guy that doesn't have a middle name. I thought you were supposed to have a middle name if you were an assassin. <laughs> Jacques Clement. It should be like Jacques. That would be a good. Assassins usually have like redneckish middle names. <laughs> like Jack Rupert Clement. Yeah, that would be good. His name is Rupert. <laughs> Um, and it's going to fall to Henry the Fourth, or he's going to have the opportunity to come to power, Henry of Navarre. And if Henry of Navarre was good at anything, it was staying alive for a, for a fair amount of time. Not going to stay alive forever, but um, and also going along to get along. He was just kind of surfing um, the events of the the day. Um, he has converted kind of back and forth um, religiously. Uh, his leanings seem to be towards uh, being a Huguenot, French Protestantism, because that's where he seems to default. Um, but when it's advantageous, he is willing to uh, practice Catholicism. Well, it becomes clear he's not going to be able to be king in a meaningful way. He's not going to be able to bring peace and stability unless he converts to Catholicism. And so he's going to famously say, Paris is worth a mass. Mm -hmm. And notice, this will kind of be the triumph of that. We talked about the two schools that developed. The go-along-to-get-along school, and then the really push-the-envelope-on-things school. This will be the, the triumph of the uh, accommodationist school, or the Nicodemites, as Calvin would call them. But this will also mean the, the failure to be able to establish a, a lasting French Protestantism. Henry the uh, Fourth then um, will come to power, um, especially the Catholic League kind of forces him to, to convert. Um, but he will become a, a Catholic king, and he wants to end these religious wars. In 1598, the Edict of Nantes will be issued. Um, it makes the Catholic Church the official state church, um, restores property to it and income. Uh, but the Huguenots were able to worship um, if it was on a Protestant estate and if it wasn't within five leagues of Paris. So they had to stay away from Paris. Uh, and at this point, the, the Huguenot population is about 15% of the French population, and this is going to kind of be the end of this trajectory um, of uh, 
hope for an established Protestant church in France at some point, um, or even more, hope for a Protestant France. Um, the Edict of Nantes will actually have some staying power. It will last until 1685, when it's revoked by uh, Louis the Fourteenth, which is right the Sun King, isn't it? <laughs> um, and uh, and so this will have some lasting effect. Um, Lindbergh says of this, uh, Calvinism did not triumph in France, but it did survive under the shadow of at least the king's wings. Um, and so it's not that all the Protestants are now gone, but the hopes are really dashed for something to happen in France like had help happened uh, in England or Germany or Switzerland um, or as we will see, as happens in the Netherlands. Uh, Mike, I talked a lot. Anything that, that came to mind or stood out? No, it's a very complicated situation. I mean, we didn't even get into, oh, there's Spain, and things are spilling over into the low countries, which we'll get to a little bit. England plays a role in all of this. You have William of Orange, eventually, who is German and originally Lutheran and stuff. It really is a it's a continental struggle, yeah. right? And and how do you how do you deal? It takes centuries to try to figure out how you deal with the state and with religion, right? And there's lots of fits and starts, and 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 at the end of this conflict in France I mean Huguenots still have a win in the sense that they are allowed to worship at least they're going they're going to be a martyred church a persecuted church um, not necessarily second-class citizens but culturally second-class right in a lot of ways and uh, th this still is being played out in 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 France today right it is a Catholic country even though, even if nominally Catholic, if, yeah. if like if if a if a country can be nominally Catholic, like an individual can, it, it's it's France, right? It's it's ingrained in their the Notre culture. Dame fire. The country rallies around it, right. even though most of them probably weren't in mass in a while, right? And you know, and don't care, right? And and uh, would even probably identify more as agnostic or atheist, right? Many of them, and so and it, it's just. That plays a part. France is different today than in other countries because when when you think about what does it mean to be French, a part of that equation is to be Catholic. And even though they don't and actually it, it, it's believe... it's a defining characteristic as a result of this in the 16th century. Yet. And so the way French deal with foreign people, especially foreign people of a different religion, it they don't first of all, go like America would go to um, uh, freedom of religion as an individual, freedom to, um, you know, have have your own gatherings and stuff like that. Gun. But maybe, yeah, but maybe just a little bit of, okay, our culture is somewhat changed if we don't have the Ten Commandments as the basis for all of our laws. Where in France, they're more concerned about what does it mean to be French? Can you be French and not be nominally Catholic? I'm not sure that you can. So they're not thinking individual rights of, of freedom of religion, nor are they really concerned about doctrine, right? It's just an odd kind of thing. But the Huguenot thing, of course, is still there. You can see Huguenot crosses all over, which is kind of a Maltese cross with a, with a little dove, the Holy Spirit, 
that's attached to the bottom of it. Um, and so there's still that cultural that's there and certainly churches that, that maintain their non-Catholic Protestant way of worshiping, believing. Yeah, and, and I think to come back to that, we really have to understand how people viewed the health of their community at this time. Again, um, Mike's sin or my sin could absolutely affect, right? It could affect each other because both of them related to the health of the community. Um, and so um, the way a monarch saw things or the way individuals saw things, uh, this was just, we might look at it and say, why don't you just stay out of each other's business? It was mm-hmm. each other's business um, at this time, and still today, just a little in a little bit different way. It doesn't yeah. matter, yeah. Well, and I, you know, I was thinking of think of today. Uh, well, not necessarily today, but think about pre Kennedy, um, in the states too, right? Catholics could be Americans, mm-hmm. and I was raised Catholic, and, and I know stories of, um, you know, Catholics being viewed with suspicion. Oh, you know, persecuted us uh, here. Um, and I mean, none of my relatives are got it too hard, but, um, but they all, Kennedy was very important to, to the older generation and you could be Catholic and be an American, but in the view of many, you couldn't be as American, mm-hmm. um, as if you, you were a, a Protestant, right? Um, and this is why even in things, and thankfully the Klan was never mainstream, but things like the Klan, there was an anti-Catholicism to go oh, along sure. with the racism, uh, that, that went hand in hand. And so uh, maybe something like that would be would be somewhat similar. Um, we see tensions about this in India now with uh, some of the new citizenship laws that have been made and um, likely targeted at, at Muslims. But right, to what extent are you Indian if you're not Hindu? Mm-hmm. Like, um, so these things can still come up in a, a lot of, uh, can a lot of I places. Can me two quick stories? Sure. Uh, you know, the... Just don't roll your eyes at like, oh, how Catholics aren't persecuted. Well, even in the small town that I, one of the small towns near the small town that I worked in in, in Minnesota, they tell the story of the of the local Catholic church, and this is one of the few places in America where Lutherans were more prominent than Roman Catholics. A small Catholic parish, you know, a couple hundred people wanted to build a new sanctuary, and uh, so they had their materials out there, like cinder blocks and stuff, and and, uh, the townspeople, some of them probably drunk. uh, Usually that goes right along with what I suspect you're going to say. Took their stuff and threw it in the lake, their building materials, and this is is not in the recent past. This is not in the distant past, right? When you think about, uh, it was years ago when uh, France had kind of a debate over whether people who were paid by the French government, like school teachers could wear a burqa, right? And at at first we would say, why, why would you, that would be abhorrent to say somebody can't practice their religion, right? But that wasn't very French to cover a woman's face. And especially with enlightenment ideals of equality. Yeah, and so they didn't see it first again as a, as a religious freedom issue, but as a, French issue, right? And it's hard for us to understand that. So in America, you talked about the Klan or, or J.F. Kennedy or the story about throwing the throwing the building materials of the Catholic Church in the lake. Um, that's a different, that's how we handle it inappropriately in America, where in France they handle it 
inappropriately in a different way, yeah. right? It's different mindset. And you can see some of the seeds being planted here. Then, of course, when you get the French Revolution, that's going to enhance everything, right? And and be much more of a defining moment. And, and maybe just finally, uh, the Huguenots will be of importance too because now – Calvin flees from France, and he has to flee from France. He doesn't flee as a coward. Um, and he'll be very concerned about France from Geneva. And we talked about this a lot in the Calvin videos. If people want to go to the YouTube channel, they can. But um, Calvin himself will never be able to be much directly involved um, in the French church after leaving. But through Beza, his protege, um, the Huguenots will become reformed in orientation. And, and just again, I would stress, you can see throughout Europe in the Western world um, foot, you know, footprints of French Protestantism. Uh, this is going to be, as Mike said earlier, these are people who are traveling. Um, and so this will become a, uh, a way in which Reformed thought, Calvinist thought, if we want to speak of it that way, um, will be spread uh, throughout Europe and the Western world as well. So this will be important for the the spread of of Reformed theology. All right. I think we can leave off there, and we'll pick up next with the Netherlands, which will be a shorter one, but I think the Netherlands are an interesting case. Um, But in the meanwhile, hope everybody's doing well. Today is uh, Election Day in Wisconsin. We we made the national news again, Mike. (laughs) So this has been a big fight. I won't ask you if you're voting or not. But but if you are voting, stay healthy out there, too. So in the meanwhile, let the bird fly.